in the scriptures. We're in the book of Genesis, chapter 45. If you do not have a copy of the Bible, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And um, you can turn it to the first book of the Bible, um, page 38, Genesis chapter 45. Now, do you think that three words, just three words at any time in the English language would be pretty easy to say? English is an interesting language. Of all the languages of the world in history, English has the broadest range of vocabulary. And uh, I, I don't know if this is a true statement. I don't know if we form the most complex sentences, but boy, we can form some pretty complex sentences in English. Uh, but there are uh, simple sentences, and I think of a, a simple sentence that only has three words. I forgive you. Now think about that simple sentence in light of the unthinkable. I remember reading the news and I was struck by a tragic situation. It was the year of 2012. There was a young boy named Jordan Howe, only 15 years old, and he was looking for approval from his friends. He lived in a more dangerous type of neighborhood, and so the approval that he sought would be found in bringing his father's gun to school. He had found the gun. It was sitting up on a high shelf. It was wrapped in a towel. And every time that he would bring this gun into his social arena at school, people would ooh and awe over how powerful he was as a man. Well, the day that would change Jordan's life forever was like a day, like any other day, he had brought the gun with him. They were sitting on the bus, and he discreetly pulled it out, and the friends started passing the gun around. When Jordan got the gun back, he took the gun, and he pointed it at the floor in a big machismo posture. He pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. That's when he made that decision. He pointed the gun at 13-year-old Gina Guzman de Jesus, as he carelessly aimed the weapon in her direction, he heard a shocking sound. The gun had discharged. She was shot in the neck. She was rushed to the hospital where doctors pronounced her dead on arrival. While many individuals were deeply affected by the incident, Gina's mother was probably most affected. She had just lost the center of her world, her daughter. And this young man, Jordan, she determined, should face the full extent of the law for his actions. He should have known better. He should never have pointed that weapon at his or her daughter, Gina. Now, I want you to think about this story. I want you to think about Addie, the mother's grief and her pain and, and anger over the circumstances. And then I want you to think about that simple sentence, I forgive you. Doesn't sound so simple anymore, does it? In fact, I think that that three-word sentence has just become one of the more complicated sentences in all of the English language. Can you imagine how could you forgive someone who has taken so much away from you? 
I think about Addie's situation, and I think about Joseph's situation, and I believe the two of them would have understood one another really well. Remember his story? Joseph, he was kind of a bratty, little, spoiled 17-year-old boy, and his father had sent him off on an errand to go and check on his brothers. When he arrives at Dotham, the brothers see him from far off, and they're already plotting uh, about him. One of them says, here comes this dreamer. Let's kill him. And when he finally makes his way to his brothers, they have talked themselves off of that ledge, but they do determine to do him harm. So they throw him down into a pit. And as he's in that pit, in that deep, dark pit, completely bewildered by what's happening to him in this moment, he's crying up from the pit, let me out of here, please, don't do this to me. And he hears the brothers conspiring to do the unthinkable to him. There's Ishmaelite, Midianite traders coming by slave traders, and they are going to sell their own brother for 20 shekels of silver. They extend a rope down into the pit. They pull Joseph up. He's still begging and pleading. They send him off in chains, and he's marched down to Egypt. The next 13 years of his life would be a living hell. For 13 years, he would be a slave in the household of Potiphar. Then he would be falsely accused. And then he would be thrown into the pit of a prison where we saw in Psalm 105 that he would literally be shackled around the neck and around the wrists and around the ankles. Thirteen years. How do you say those three words? I forgive you in a situation like that. Well, this morning, we're going to take a deep look at what the Bible has to say about forgiveness. As you might already have gathered from the two illustrations that I've presented to you, the Bible's view of forgiveness seeks to push your understanding of what forgiveness is beyond the boundaries of what we think is possible. Friends, as you look at what the Bible has to say about forgiveness, you should be asking the question, how is that possible? Could I ever do something like that? If you get into what the Bible's saying about forgiveness and you say to yourself, oh, that's just another nice little teaching and tidbit. Yeah, forgive someone as you want to be forgiven. That's great. Let's go out and do that. If you just kind of glibly gloss over it like that, I don't think we're fully understanding what it is that God wants us to learn about forgiveness. Now, as I thought about this subject, I couldn't help but think to myself about how we live in a day and an age where there are certain obstacles to forgiveness. And I think about this even in terms of the local church. As a pastor, I've only been in full-time ministry for about nine years now. I've been a senior pastor. I'm going into my fourth year I have found that one of the biggest obstacles in the local church is people practicing forgiveness towards one another. Of course, that doesn't happen here at Osterville Baptist Church. We're perfect, but you know, if you were to go down to other churches around, you would see this taking place all the time. Now, what would happen, right, if forgiveness was taking place in a regular, habitual way in the church, well, I think that we'd see people come to know Christ, grow in Christ, 
and be wowed by the transformative power of forgiveness that can be unleashed in a church. So let's think about some of these obstacles that we face. Obstacle number one is that we don't forgive because we keep lists of offenses. Do you have a list? What list? Well, it might not be a list where you've actually physically taken out a pen and a piece of paper and written down names one to ten. (laughs) Some of you might have that, and that's kind of scary. But it's probably an invisible list. Over time and through circumstances, people have offended you. And in your heart, their name gets added to the list. Maintaining a long list of offenses is antithetical to forgiveness. It's a serious obstacle. I'm convinced that unforgiveness is a cultivated attitude. It's something that we whip ourselves into thinking and believing and desiring. I was talking to my father just recently on the phone. We were discussing this topic of forgiveness, and he said to me, you know, you you just don't know how over the course of 35 years of full-time ministry experience, I've been in the counseling room talking to someone about their bitterness, their resentment, their pain, and describing to them the Bible's position of forgiveness. And at the end of the counseling session, they're in full agreement with the Bible, and they see their need for it. But then, they go home, and they talk to another person that is not interested in cultivating biblical forgiveness in them. They get them all whipped up, and they come back to the counseling environment with a list of justifications as to why they don't need to forgive. See how that's a cultivated attitude? It's something we talk ourselves into, we continue to talk ourselves into. Obstacle number two. We are not just good at maintaining invisible lists, we are also skillful at adding offenses onto the list. In fact, skillful at reading offense into other people's actions. I think we're too ready to add people to the list without real evidence, without real understanding, without even real reason. Think about this proverb Solomon gives to us. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. I want you to think again about Addie and Joseph's story as you think about the power of forgiveness and and how much we need to be applying forgiveness in your life. Do you think that, uh, how do you think that someone gets to a place where they're, they're able to forgive on the scale of the offenses that they've endured? How do you think someone gets there? Uh, do you think it comes by just on a much smaller scale, regularly saying, I'm offended and I'm not forgiving you? I don't think so. I think sometimes we're offended by situations and circumstances where we've just read intentions. I've found this about myself, and I don't know if you're the same way. I'm pretty good at reading body language. Anyone good at reading body language in the room? I am horrible at understanding motives when reading body language. Nine times out of ten, I read body language. I think it's about me. I'm completely wrong. 
Do you understand what I'm saying here? Uh, Doug Kyle said this recently. He's one of the elders of our church, and I think it was such a wise uh, piece of advice. We were discussing the topic of forgiveness, and he said something like this. uh, I choose to believe the best in others. And I think you could add to that, unless I'm shown incontrovertible evidence otherwise. So we don't need to walk around naively and uh, be a punching bag or something along those lines, but we can say something like this. I refuse to jump to the worst conclusion of another person. Proverbs 19, 11, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his, what, glory to overlook an offense. Third obstacle have you ever thought that we might struggle with forgiveness because we're too self-focused? I believe that our ability to extend grace is directly proportional to our ability to put ourselves into someone else's shoes. Wise Christians understand the, the tendency of the culture that they live in. One reality of our culture, of this 21st uh, American culture, is there is a Uh, uh, a tendency toward self-absorption, even narcissism. I can give a recent example that just absolutely shocked me. Uh, This past Thursday evening, I had the joy and pleasure of going to dinner to celebrate the accomplishments of one of the young men in our church. Uh, He's one of our teenagers, 18 years old. His name is Ethan Surhall. On July 3rd, Last summer, Ethan, by God's grace, was able to rescue a young woman who was drowning at Couples Beach. Isn't that amazing? He, he was a primary rescuer. He had assisted a physician's assistance. He was able to perform uh, one repetition, one cycle of the American Red Cross professional uh, rescuer CPR. And because this training went into what Ethan was doing, he knew that he needed to put this young woman in the rescuer position, which was to turn her on her side. It, it, it ended up literally saving her life. Can you imagine a young man doing that? It's amazing. Now, what struck me as we were talking about this situation is Ethan remembered distinctly that as a crowd was gathered around this young girl, as they were performing life-saving measures, as a mother was crying out in lament, moaning in pain, because her daughter did not have a pulse, Not 10 yards away, there were two couples taking selfies with the ocean in the background. Now, why do I share this? Because only in a selfie-driven culture could I get so disconnected with reality and the human situation that I would do such a thing. Now, I don't think that you guys would be taking selfies while someone is going through immense tragedy like that, but we're still swimming in the same soup, aren't we? I mean, you and I, we probably all too often go onto social media and make a post about ourselves. 
We probably all too often struggle with the desires to get likes and to be noticed. We may tend to mostly think about ourselves. That's what selfie culture does. It creates self-focused people. So what's the remedy? Well, the biblical answer is Philippians 2, 3, and 4. So I think all of us should memorize these verses. Very helpful. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Get outside of your box. Think about other people. Fourth obstacle. We don't forgive because we mistakenly believe that hatred will heal us. I'll be honest. When I drum up anger, when I recount what has happened to me, when I see the person who has hurt me hurting, it feels good. It's like a shot of adrenaline. And my twisted mind thinks that I'm healing as that is taking place, but unlike real healing, rewinding and replaying the offense and reveling in the hurt of the other person does not heal the wound. It's like scratching the scab open again. That's what hatred does. It doesn't heal. It doesn't provide a pathway forward for the soul. It does not foster new growth or restore relationships. So then the question is, what brings healing? I think that we need to apply that very, very complicated sentence. I forgive you. Let's go back into Joseph's story once again. Joseph knew that holding on to his hate would only consume him. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 41 what he decided to name his two sons? Manasseh and Ephraim. Do you remember that the names of those sons was like a commitment to God? Manasseh means God has made me forget all my hardship in all of my family's house. Ephraim is God has made me fruitful. And we noted that Manasseh must come before Ephraim. So as I read this story, I believe that Genesis 41 is where Joseph is coming to terms with his past and where he is choosing something very, very radical in his world. What is that? It's total forgiveness. What is total forgiveness? Well, first, it is Godlike. We forgive because God is gracious, merciful, and forgiving. God, the most glorious one, the most majestic one, the sovereign of the universe was greatly offended by our sin, yet he sent his son into the world to die for us. It is a godlike quality. It is also total, which necessarily means that it is not limited or conditional. It, it means that it is not a 75% of the way forgiveness. It means that there are no conditions attached. I forgive you, but... It's total. It's also transformational. It offers a pathway forward for new relationship and reconciliation. You see, as we pick up the story of Genesis 45, we watch Joseph extend this total forgiveness to his brothers. R.T. Kendall shares this. Everything 
Joseph put his brothers through in the recent days could now be clearly explained. He had been bringing them to the place where they would really believe and appreciate being forgiven. Total forgiveness was more than Judah had bargained for when he pleaded with the governor to let Benjamin go back. Receiving total forgiveness had not been in Judah's mind. He had merely wanted to remain in Egypt as Joseph's servant, but what Joseph needed, along with the rest of his brothers, was forgiveness. Indeed, when Joseph's brothers learn that he is this governor, the Bible Bible says that they were dismayed at his presence, Genesis 45.3. The verb means to be horrified, put on alarm, filled with apprehension. Why? Why? (laughs) Because they were expecting to receive something, but they were not expecting to receive total forgiveness from Joseph. So as we look at this story, we're going to see Joseph forgive, and we're going to see what a picture of total forgiveness looks like. Let's read Genesis 45, verses 1 through 8. The story picks up. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So what principles do we see with total forgiveness? Well, the first principle is that total forgiveness seeks to protect the other. It is demonstrated to us, to you and me, when someone shows that he or she does not want anyone else to know what we've done. Look at this in Joseph's story. There's two remarkable things in these verses. The first thing is found in verse 1 when he he clears out the room. He says, make everyone go out from me. This reunion is not going to be a public event. He doesn't want to broadcast it all over the Egyptian networks and on his Egyptian Facebook page. The process of forgiveness would be handled discreetly in the privacy of this room. Second, I understand it that Joseph even seeks to withhold the gory details from his own father, Jacob. If you look at verse 9, 
He says, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. When you think about all the things that these brothers would have feared, probably the thing that they feared above anything, the thing that they feared above being thrown into the darkest pit dungeon in Egypt was that their father would find out what they had done to Joseph. Who has the power right now? Joseph is holding all of the cards. If you have not forgiven, if you're holding on to bitterness, you're going to say this, get back up to Canaan and you go tell dad right now what you did to me and then you bring him back down here again. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say that. Tell dad that God has made me Lord of all Egypt. The unforgiving spirit wants to let the world know of its own hurt. Love hides. Hatred lets the cat out of the bag. You've been in this conversation and and I've been in this conversation before. Can you believe what she did to me? And we get that response that we love. Yeah, I can't believe that she did that to you. Love doesn't do that. Total forgiveness looks to protect the one we are forgiving. Second principle. Total forgiveness seeks to alleviate the guilt and shame of the offender. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Do you remember how we noted in Genesis chapter 40 that Jacob, uh, Joseph had incredible empathy skills? He was able to read the chief cupbearer and the chief baker's emotions. And so he responded to them in their time of need. We see this same skill employed here. Instead of being self-focused, he can read what his own brothers must be feeling as the revelation of who he is is growing upon them. You know what bitterness does? Bitterness seeks to leave the person who has offended us in a perpetual state of unease. But forgiveness says, look, I know how you must feel right now. You must feel awful. But I'm okay. God has taken good care of me despite what happened. You don't need to marinate in self-loathing. It's over. It's done with. Do you see how a preoccupation with ourselves is a major obstacle to total forgiveness? I have to get into the other person's skin. I have to be able to feel what they feel. Third, Total forgiveness requires a big God outlook. You see, that's the biggest principle in this entire story. You have to be a big Godder to extend big forgiveness. 
Let me show you where I see this in the passage. There's several verses that highlight it. If you look at verse 5, he says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, And who? God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then look especially at verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but who? God. The same principle is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Total forgiveness flows from a high theology that God is sovereign. He comes from behind to shape the past. He is involved in my present. He is ordaining my future. He is a big God. And this is why Joseph can say to his brothers those three words, I forgive you. Even after they've done the unthinkable. He's essentially saying, ultimately, you didn't do it. God did it. It wasn't you that sent me here. God was in control the entire time. Do you think that there was a single moment where God lost his grip on the universe? No. Think about that grand theology and how it changes our view of our past, how it secures our present, how it ensures our future. God can take your worst moment and in time so redeem your past that you can look back and wish not to change anything about it. Do you know what this means? God's sovereignty does not only mean that you can forgive others, it also means that you can forgive yourself. I think it's really easy for us to say, God forgives. I think it's really hard for us to forgive ourselves. We go around and say, I know that God's forgiven me for everything that I've ever done, and yet we're stuck in the past somehow in our life. We're constantly looking back and regretting and saying, I wish I could change what I did there, but you can't. You can't change that. God's in control. He's a big God. He can redeem. He can reshape that. And you can forgive yourself. As we process this idea of total forgiveness, I'm sure that there are some questions, right? Anytime we get into the topic of forgiveness, our mind goes off into this place. But what about this? So let me ask and answer a couple of questions and then we'll wrap things up. Uh, The first question that comes to mind, and I've asked this for sure, Can I forgive someone who has hurt me deeply but does not see the need to ask for my forgiveness? Or you could even add to that, what if they even are continuing to hurt me? Can I forgive them? And the answer is, you can and you must. You see, in this story, Joseph's brothers are expressing remorse for what they have done. Their acknowledgement of guilt is implicit 
in their actions. And so we see here a full forgiveness coming together. Full forgiveness is the idea that two parties are participating in the act of their forgiveness. There's the person who is saying, I'm sorry, and there's the person who's saying, I forgive you. There can also be what I would call a one-sided forgiveness. Even when someone will not ask, I can do my part. I can say I forgive them. This is what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. We can do this because God stands above even the hard-heartedness of my enemy. He is so sovereign that he can redeem a one-sided forgiveness. Here's our second question that we tend to ask. Have I forgiven someone if what they did to me still hurts? Forgiveness does not mean that an old wound will no longer hurt. In Joseph's case, he would live with a lot of pain still. He would probably have the pain of the scars of the iron fetters that were around his necks and his ankles and his feet. He would live with the lost years, the 20 lost years where he wouldn't see the face of his father, wouldn't see the face of his youngest brother, wouldn't even see the face of the 10 brothers that threw him down there. That's painful. That, that's stuff that you just can't get back, right? But... The pain is meant to be brought to the Lord and it is redeemed in light of God's promises. Psalm 119.50 says, This is my comfort and my affliction that your promise gives me life. Church, my question to us as we close is, what if Christ followers said that complex sentence more often. I forgive you. What if forgiveness was the lifeblood, the, the very DNA, the essence of the local church where believers were in, offending and then being forgiven uh, day after day? What if Osterville Baptist Church, this church, became a I forgive you kind of church? This is what Jesus envisioned. This is what he envisioned when he prayed, forgive us our debts as we also for, uh, have forgiven our debtors. Or when he was asked in Matthew 18, 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Jesus responds, I do not say to you seven times, but how many times? Seventy-seven times, which of course we understand to mean a lot and a lot and a lot and a lot and a lot of times, Right? There's real healing. There's real power in that kind of forgiveness. We go back to Addie Guzman, to Jesus' story. And just remember what's taken place in her story. She has suffered the unthinkable. A young man, Jordan Howe, got onto a bus and he pointed a firearm, carelessly aimed it at her daughter and killed her. Instead of holding on to her anger, Addie determined in her heart that she would seek to totally forgive her daughter's killer. 
The image that you see there on the screen is a picture of an interaction that they had at one of his hearings. She embraced him with a hug. She whispered in her, his ears, I forgive you. But it wasn't just words. She didn't just extend forgiveness in that moment and then moved on. No, she actually fought to fight for a, a lighter sentence for Jordan Howe. She not only pushed for the lighter sentence, but she also wanted a sentence, and, sentence that was more restorative and holistic for the young man. And not only that, but she also committed to spending a year with her daughter's killer, going from school to school to school, educating students and, and families and faculty on gun violence. The judge presiding over the case remarked, in 20 years I have watched human tragedy unfold in the courtroom. I could have never imagined a victim's mother embracing her child's killer. So now we come down to this point. Friends, who is on your list? Who's on it? Who's number one? How are you going to respond to that person, that individual, in light of God's desire for you to have total forgiveness toward them? Could I challenge you to say a prayer at some point in your own time? God, would you give me the power to extend total forgiveness into this situation? Would you help me to practice Jesus' words, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? I bet you that would change a lot in your world if you did that. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you and give you glory for being the God of the universe who not only presides over the universe, who is not only sovereign over the universe, but who is merciful and just and gracious and yes, forgiving. It's in light of who you are, Lord, and your character that we too seek to be a community of forgiveness. I pray that especially for Osterville Baptist Church right now, but certainly for the other local churches here on the Cape and on around the world. Lord, we pray that there wouldn't be vacant seats in a sanctuary due to unforgiveness. We pray that there wouldn't be hard hearts due to unforgiveness. We pray, God, that we would truly be one of those places where people come in and, and see Christians extending forgiveness, and in doing that, making the invisible Christ visible before them. Help us to be that kind of church. Help me to be that type of individual. Help my friends here to be those types of people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.